We are in Philippians chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, open it up. If you want to make notes, get your pen out, get your paper out. We're going to go through some really cool stuff today. But it is rooted in the idea of looking at Christ and for me at least. I'm speaking for Mark Lanier. Today's class is a study in contrasts. Contrasts. The difference between one thing and another. The difference between something that's there in the shadows and something that's vivid and real. In honesty, it's the difference between something that's alive and something that's dead. And the study in contrast is a study that shows Jesus is the one who's alive and it shows me as someone in pretty stark contrast with him. And it's a, it's a challenge for me and I hope a challenge for you to move us from our natural tendencies into what is godliness. And that's where we are and that's what we're looking at. So I ask you to join me in that as we begin to study, and I want to keep it in context, so we'll start with Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Now remember, if you've been charting through this class, and if you've missed some, you can go back and watch them on YouTube, but let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ is something that Paul said in chapter 1 that is kind of his theme, and he's launched off of that into the passage that we've been studying. And this passage begins in the context of, of our manner of life is worthy or it's, 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 it's uh, appropriate for the gospel of Christ, for the death of Christ, if we are of one mind and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humilities count others more significant than ourselves. Now as Paul says that, I talked two weeks ago about this word conceit is the way it's translated in the English Standard Version. Vain conceit is given in a couple of other versions, but it's this Greek word, kenodoxian is the form here, kenodoxian is actually a compound word. There are two Greek words that are put together there. One is the word kinos, which means empty. And you've got the kappa, epsilon, nu, o, kino of it. That's the compound beginning. And then doxian is a second word. Doxa uh, means glory, or opinion, but glory in this sense. And so conceit, a vain conceit, is someone who is empty but thinks that there's something special they are conceited thinking they are exaltable and glorious when in fact poof they're nothing so it gets translated conceit or vain conceit because that's what it is. And I told you when I gave you this two weeks ago, an upcoming event was to look at this as a huge concept. That's what we're doing today. So I've got three ways that I want us to look at it. Three things we're going to look at here. Almost a Mobius strip, Janet, but not quite. It's an optical illusion. First, I want to look at Jesus as God. And then I want to look at Jesus as man. And then we'll finish with Jesus as Lord. So those are the three things we're going to cover today in class. As we look at this passage, we start with Jesus as God. Paul says the following. Who, you know, have this, remember our flow, have the same attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now the word form, you'll see twice there, it's the Greek word morphe. And while I had intended to go into a long discourse with you, time will not allow it. 
So instead, what I'm going to do is simply tell you that form or morphe typically refers to something's appearance or shape. So Jesus, for all practical appearance purposes, shape for purposes, form was God. Uh, this, this word, he was God. It's, it's not the verb to be. It's not he was in an English sense. Um, Huparkon uh, uh, there is a participle, and it's a, it's a present participle, and the idea behind it is possessing. It's having something. So Jesus was possessing. He, 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 he was God. That was his, that's who he was. That was his possession. Let me give you a couple of passages to give you an idea of how this verb can be used when it's used in a present participle form. So we'll look at like Matthew 19, 21. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus says the following. Whoops. There we go. If you would be perfect, and he's talking to the rich young man, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. The word translated possess, same word. What you are, what you have, but it's possession. It's, it's this possession idea. Matthew 25, 14, another present participle. Jesus is telling the parable of the talents. He says, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Same word. See, Jesus possessed the form of God. He was God. It was his. It wasn't something that was, eh, you can pretend to be. It wasn't dress-up clothes. It was the real substance of who he was he was in the form of God Paul uses the word uh, uh, in that form in another place he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 3 famous chapter on love you remember this chapter on love if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but don't have love I'm a noisy gong clanging cymbal Verse 3, if I give away all I have and I deliver my body but to be burned, but haven't love, I gain nothing. All I have, all I possess, everything I'm possessing, huparkon. It's the same word. So Paul is using this and Paul is saying that Jesus possessed the form of God. He was. He, 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 that, that's who he was. So being in the form of God did not regard or count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm harping on these Greek words because I really want us to understand what Paul's saying and not simply read it in English. This is an interesting word. And it's one of the words that makes me believe this is a song because this is not a word you find in the New Testament. This is not a word you find in the Old Testament. This is a strange word. This word, harpogmos, means to take something by force. It can be used in the, the noun form as booty or, you know, something the pirates grab booty, not the bad pejorative usage of that. B-O-O-T, well actually it's probably spelled the same way. Okay, rule one when you're digging a hole, put down the shovel. Um, plunder, plunder, plunder. It's used for plunder. It's used for um, um, something you steal. But, but, but within the framework of this, Paul is saying that, you know, it's, it's something, uh, um, Sarah, our youngest daughter, um, we, we got to, to get on, on a jet ski one time. I don't know if you've ever been on a jet ski. 
But we got on a jet ski, and I said, honey, she was a little kid at the time, and she had her life jacket on. She's behind me. I said, hold on tight. And I said, do you know why? She said, why? I said, because we're going to drive it like we stole it. <laughs> and off we went. Drive it like you stole it. This idea of just Jesus did not count existing in the form of God, something he needed to hold on to as if he'd stolen it. It was his. It's who he was. He didn't have to, to seize it so tightly and make a run for the hills. Instead, what he did is he emptied himself. Kenoo is the verb. It's in an aorist form. It's got the E in front of it because of that. But, but he emptied himself. Whoops, go back. He emptied himself. Now, if I tell you, take this E off of it, this epsilon off, and see the kappa, epsilon, nu, and that's a long O instead of a short O, does it ring a bell? It might because it's the first part of this compound word we had. It's the kenos. Jesus emptied himself. Doesn't have vain conceit. It doesn't have glory at the end. So the glory's not at the end, but it's just that word kenos. He emptied himself. He made himself empty. The verb in the Greek, kenoo, actually refers to making yourself empty. Unless it's in the passive form, and then it's you're made empty. But, but he made himself empty. He emptied himself. All right, now if you're following the flow of this, Here's what we've got. Jesus possessed the actual form of God. But he didn't regard that something that he had to hold on tightly as if he'd stolen it. Instead, he emptied himself of it and took on the form, the true form of a human being. Born in the likeness of of man. And what we see here is that Jesus as God is the model of humanity of humility in the way he became part of humanity. And th th there could be no greater display of humility than that of God himself emptying himself and, and a lot of people say well now what does it mean for Christ to empty himself well if, if you know it looks like I'm spending 20 years already in Philippians if we were willing to spend 25 years here we could discuss this in great depth and have several classes over it I'm not going to do that but I will say that Jesus when he emptied himself taking the form of a human even as a form of a human though the spirit lived in him the Father lived in him, and he resided in them. He still was fully human. And to some extent, had human limitations. So, for example, Jesus says, when the Son of Man's going to come again, nobody knows the time. I don't even know the time. Just my Father in heaven. So, so Jesus, and, and it makes sense, the human brain which he had, is not going to possess the same knowledge, the same power, the same uh, essence as what God possesses in God's form. So we don't know all of the mystery of this. We don't understand all of the complexities. We can't put it in a nice, clean box. But we can say that Paul is using this song to express the humility that was core to God. Because this is something Jesus did when he was in the form of God. That means this is core to who God is. So that's Jesus as God. Let's look at Jesus as man. So he's, as God, in humility, takes on the form of a human. And then, verse 8, being found in human form. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now here the word form is not morphe. It's not the same word. Paul has shifted. Our English gets the same. But Paul has shifted to the word from which we get scheme. Schemata. Schemati here. And what, what form means, schema, is it's a reference to your outward appearance. But it's, it's, um, it's a different word. And, and there are some finities of why Paul may have used a different word. One of the finities for me is this is a song. And sometimes in songs, you use different words to say the same thing. Sometimes in songs, you just repeat the same thing over and over and over again. But sometimes in songs, well-written songs, you'll find different ways to say things that give a different shadow and make you think of different things. It really works well with the human brain, too. Because the human brain plays word association. You do it, you do association whether you know it or not. It is a mental shortcut. You will automatically associate things with different things. One, one of the reasons you don't name your children Hitler is because you immediately associate it with Hitler, as in Adolf. One of the reasons, you know, there are a lot of popular biblical names. Gracie had twin girls. She said, Dad, we're really struggling to name them because you took all the good biblical girl names. We have Rebecca, we have Sarah, we have Rachel, we have Elizabeth, we have, you know. And so she finds Abigail, great name, great story with David, King David, and Lydia, wonderful names. But she didn't pick Jezebel. <laughs> it's a biblical name. Hey, Jezzy. No. Because we associate things. That's one reason people stereotype. Stereotypes are often an association in their brain. And that's why some people don't even realize they're stereotyping when they do it. We associate things. And so to use a different word in a song is great because people will make a different association and it will fill out, it will flesh out, it will make the song meaning fuller to the listener. So, within the framework of this, we've got a different word that means outward appearance. But then it says, being found in human form, he humbled himself. Now, humbled here, humbled is an interesting word. It is a word that references taking the lowest place. Tapainoo is, is, is the, the, the lowest place. It's... it's it's not taking a, we, we live in a different culture in some ways. Back in the biblical times, there were very clear lines of demarcation between the haves and the have-nots. And even with the haves, there were different categories of the haves. Did you know if you went to see an athletic or a gladiatorial game in the Roman Empire, and you got there early to get your seat. If you sit in the wrong section, it's a, not just a crime, it's a crime of great magnitude, as in going to jail. Did you know in the Roman Empire, if you were not a certain class of person, you were not allowed to wear a toga? There are all of these different lines of demarcation. Did you know at a, at a synagogue gathering that the, the cushy, cushy front row seats were saved for the big spenders, the big givers? You couldn't just sit where you wanted to sit. And this is part of what gives the parable Jesus gave about when you go to a wedding, don't just assume you're sitting up at the front. You go sit in the back and let them say, oh, no, 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 we've got a seat of honor for you. It's much better, Jesus said, than going up front and them saying, hey, excuse us, uh, you can't sit there. We have more, pe more honorable people than you bump to the back. 
And Jesus is speaking into the reality of that world. So that's the reality of that world where this word finds its deep meaning. That Jesus, he took the lowest place. We translate it humbled himself. By becoming obedient. He became, Jesus, look, he not only emptied himself and became a human, but then he went the next step and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He took the lowest place. And that's the humbling of Jesus. That's what Jesus did as a man. Jesus not only emptied himself to become a man, but Jesus showed his divine, you know, I, I used this slide that Jesus showed his divine love in selflessness. But even when he became a man, he became even more humble. He took the lowest place among humanity. I, this is Isaiah 53. And time will not allow me to go through all of Isaiah 53 with you, but I want to put up some selections to give you a flavor. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If one of the thoughts for the day I did this week, I think it was this week, yeah, was uh, the arm. I referenced the arm of the Lord. An arm was a, a Hebrew expression for your strength, for what you were doing. But, you know, your arm is your strength. Coach, that's called a curl. You do that when you're eating. If you put a lot of stuff on your spoon, you're curling a lot of weight. Um, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The strength, the work of God. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Look, if I had been the Lord and I was going to become human... I would not have done it that way. There's a real study in contrast. I'd have come, A, I want air conditioning. B, they haven't even invented ice cream yet. C, he never got to eat cheese enchiladas. I mean, D, he missed the whole Star Wars movie series. Look, he came not to enjoy the niceties of being a human. He became a human and then humbled himself as a human. He was despised. He chose the lowest place. He was rejected by man. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Surely he's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He not only had his own, he had ours. And we esteemed him as stricken smitten by God, afflicted, and he was. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom, peace. With his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. I mean, this is what he did. He chose the lowest place. The, Isaiah 53 continues. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. If you ever see a picture, the Latin term Agnus Dei, Lamb of God, um, you'll frequently see a picture of the Lamb of God. And I don't draw lambs at all. But if you see one... Um, Boy, I wish I had someone up here who could draw a lamb. Um, okay. This is a fat little lamb. And it, this lamb's got like four feet. But this foot, if you see the lamb of God, whoops, one foot, the... the and it, they use the Latin name, Agnes Dei. But one foot is lifted. Do you know why in, in most of the paintings one foot is lifted? Because the Lamb of God that's going to the slaughter is not having to be drugged there. They have to rope and tie him and haul him there. 
He's going voluntarily. His leg is up. Jesus, like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers, is silent, doesn't open his mouth. But it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's Jesus as God. That's what he did when he became man. Isaiah the prophet, 600 years before almost, it lays it out in precise form. It's amazing. And that's Jesus as man. Third area. Let's talk about Jesus as Lord. Jesus says, only here, therefore, God has highly exalted him. And God has bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Now, look at this for just a moment. Therefore, God highly exalted him. Therefore. Remember I told you what humbled was? It took the lowest place. Jesus humbled himself. He took the lowest place. Therefore, God highly exalted him. This compound word over here, huperupsosin, just say it confidently and people think you know what you're saying, right? Uh, look, these, these are, are not fun words for someone from Lubbock to try and pronounce. But that's it. I mean, the, that's rough breathing. That makes an H sound. Who pair, which who pair is a word. And then you've got oops, osin, psosin. Okay, here it is. It means raised to the highest place. See, Jesus took the lowest place. Therefore, God raised him to the higher place, highest place. By the way, that U can be transliterated or put into English also, that upsilon, as a Y. So that can be H-Y-P-E-R. Hyper. That's where we get our word hyper from. Now, this, this combination here, upsoo, here at the end, upsoo, means highest place, elevated place. To raise up to a high place. To lift high. But Paul puts hyper in front of it. That's just Paul's ad. Paul wants you to know it wasn't just the, so God put him in a high place. He put him in a hyper high place. Totally high. Some of you are old enough to remember the Valley Girls. This is just totally Paul. Valley girls were um, a trend, for lack of a better way of saying it. Came out of Southern California with these girls in the 80s and 70s and 80s. Frank Zappa had a song, actually, Valley Girls, uh, with these girls who would say, like. You know, and they had these affections on what they'd say and the way they'd say it. Oh, like, da-da-da-da-da. One of the things they'd say is, totally, totally, totally. Well, at the risk of offending Brother Paul... Paul uses totally hyper all the time. I mean, he's like, he's got a copyright on hyper compounds in the New Testament where he'll just take a word and put hyper on the front because he's just hyper over the whole thing. He's just totally there. He doesn't want to just say, oh, God lifted him to a high place. He's totally high. It's just hyper high. Paul does this over and over, and it's really fun to look at and to see how people translate it. I've got one I threw up here for you today. Romans 8.37. Here's what it reads in English. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. You read it in the Greek. 
and uh, you've got um, Nike, uh, uh, Nico men here, it's in a verb form, but Nike means a conqueror. So in the verb form, you know, we, we, we're conquerors. Um, conqueror is here. Paul just adds hyper to the front. I mean, he's just going all hyper on us. And so what he's done by adding hyper to conquerors is what we've translated more than conquerors. We're hyper-conquerors. We are totally conquerors. That's the idea. By the way, this is so typically Paul, it's one of the reasons I think Paul may have written the song. Because it's included within this song that we're studying. But it's a very Pauline thing to do. Totally Paul. Now, go back to it then. So, God has totally exalted him on high. Highly exalted him. Hyper exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above all names. Now, bestowed here is not a typical word for give. It has the idea of giving, but this word is also a very Paul word. Charizomai, the root of it is charis. C-H-A-R-I-S. Charis. I added the S in the transliteration there to get that. Because you may know that as a charismatic movement. That's the people who have spiritual gifts expressed generally, historically, and in speaking in tongues and healings and things like that. It's called the charismatic movement or charismatic movement because it's from that word charis. That's the same word that Paul uses for grace. It means to give freely. So Jesus, God, not only hyper-exalted him, but he graced him. He graced on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now, I have a bee in my bonnet on name, as many of y'all know, because you've heard me say it before. But whether you're looking at Shem in the Hebrew or Onoma in the Greek, name was more than simply your label. Inherent in name was your, your resume, your, your curriculum vitae, your, 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 who you were, your character, what you've done. It's, it's, your, it's, it's not simply a label. We have a tendency in our day to use names so much as a label. How many times have you filled out a form? Last name, first name, middle initial. Last name, first name, middle initial. And so we've got names down as, as appellations, as, as uh, something on a name tag. And we lose the import of the original word. Now, we still use it a little bit for reputation and who you are. You know, like if, if uh, when I was in high school, I can remember someone saying, oh, you don't want to hang around with her? She has a bad name. Well, they weren't saying her name was Jezebel. They were talking about her character. Let me give you an Old Testament and a New Testament passage to make this real for you. Psalm 910 is one of the best Old Testament passages I know to show this usage of name. In Psalm 910, we read the following. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He's a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their faith or trust in you. Those who know your name. Well, let's not say in those who, what's the name of God? Oh, yod heh vav heh in the Hebrew. We don't quite know how to pronounce it. But if you know that, you put your trust in Him? No. But those who know God's character do. Those who understand who God really is, they put their trust in Him. Name is just a, a word that, that, that denotes significance of, of their character, their reputation. What they've been. In fact, in the Old Testament, you'll see over and over, if the name doesn't fit the actions, they change the name. God changed Jacob's name from deceiver 
to Israel because he'd grown past that character trait and shouldn't be associated with it any longer. So Yaakov becomes Yisrael. And, and, and that's what we've got here. Let me give you a New Testament passage. The New Testament passage I'm going to do is Matthew 10, 41 through 42. Here's the problem. I can't put the Greek and the English up at the same time, so I'm going to steal this form that we're using and look at how name is used in Matthew 10, 41 through 42. Here's what it says. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. This is Jesus talking. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now I'm telling you that name means who you are and what you've done. It's your resume. It's your character. Okay? So look at this. Because he is, because he is, because he is. All of those are just translations of name. Ace Onoma. The one who receives a prophet, it's translated because he is a prophet, but it actually says uh, the one's receiving a prophet in, uh, into, his, into his name as a prophet. The reward of the prophet he'll receive. So the one who, who Jesus says receives a prophet in the name of the prophet because he is a prophet. It just name is being used in the Greek here but we just translate it because he is because the name is the character. It's the resume. So if you receive a prophet because he's a prophet. That's truly his character. That's truly his resume. That's truly who he is. Then you're going to get a prophet's reward. If you receive a righteous person, a sonoma, because his name is righteous. Well, not just because his name is, but because his character is, because he's righteous. If you receive a righteous person because that's who he is, then you get a righteous person's reward. And if you receive a, 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 a small child... Because uh, a small child, only his name is a disciple. Because he is a disciple. Because that, that, that's who you are. That's your character. See, name is your resume. It's who you are. It's what you've done. So within the framework of this, Jesus gets the name above every name. He's got a character, he's got a resume, he's got a past, he's got an experience, he has a reputation, he has something that nobody else has. The name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's got, an, who has a name like Jesus? Well, actually, I've got a fella uh, who is Hispanic, and his name is Jesus, and it's spelled just like Jesus. But he doesn't have a name like Jesus. If we're using name in the biblical sense of your character. Um... This, by the way, is why Jesus has so many names. His character is so full. He's also Emmanuel. He is God with us. That wasn't the label his parents gave him. That's part of his character, though. He's Savior of the world. That's part of his character. That's part of his reputation. He's Lord of all. That's part of his character. That's part of his reputation. That's who he is. And, and Paul says inherent in the name and reputation of Jesus is a humility that says I don't have to hold on to God, my godness, as if I'd stolen it. I empty myself. I'll take the lowest position as a human, but God has highly exalted him and given him the highest position with a reputation, a name unlike all others. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. David Capes is sitting over here. And David Capes will talk to you ad nauseum and convince every one of you that when Paul makes a statement like this, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's referencing Jesus as Yahweh Lord of the Old Testament. And this is a passage that really backs up David's teaching on this, which I think is just dead on. But if I told you before that Christ emptying himself and humbling himself before other humans, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, if that was Isaiah 53, if Jesus' emptying was Isaiah 53, his exaltation is Isaiah 45. So let's look at it briefly as we're bringing this to a close. In the humiliation of Jesus and the obedience of Jesus is the exaltation of Jesus. Isaiah 45 says it this way. Thus says the Lord. And that's in all capitals because it's referencing the Hebrew name for God, which should not even be spoken by a good Jew. They would just say Adonai, or they would say Hashem, the name. But they don't speak the name of God. That's what's being used here. Now in Paul's Greek translation of the Old Testament, it gets the Greek word. They don't put the Hebrew letters of God's name down. They use the Greek word for Lord, kurios. Thus says Yahweh God. I am Yahweh God. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am Yahweh God who does all these things. Yahweh's created it. Israel is saved by Yahweh with everlasting salvation. For thus says Yahweh who created the heavens, he is God, Quote, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Not just Israel, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And here it is, look at it. To me, the Lord, Yahweh, to me... Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. It's translated here, swear allegiance. That's what's being quoted by Paul in the psalm. Paul is quoting this because Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. Every tongue acknowledge, Jesus Christ is Yahweh God, to the glory of God the Father. There is one God. It's the mystery of God. He is not a human where we can just put him in a box and say, oh, now I understand, three in one. Oh, okay, that makes sense. No, this is a being that's far beyond our ability of even our greatest supercomputers to understand. He knows how many electrons are rotating around star Alpha Romeo out there somewhere. That's the star that's shaped like a car from Italy. I think it's the star's Alpha Centauri, not Alpha Romeo. Oh, well. And this is to the glory of God, the Father. Look at that word glory. Does it ring a bell with you, Doksan? It should. You remember this? We started out with it. I've gone back to it once. Uh, being of one mind, do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit. And I told you that those are two words. Kenos. Empty, doxa, glory. That's what Paul's using here, is the second half. Jesus, he's already said, emptied himself. Jesus took this compound word that wrongly describes us, 
wrongly says that we are conceited in, in vanity, wrongly says that we're worthy of glory when we're empty and not. And Jesus splits those words up and truly becomes empty to the true glory of God. I tried to explain it this way. Jesus is right. I'm living for me. And so within the framework of that vain conceit of me pretending to be something I'm not, we've got this world that is shown by bookends. And here are the bookends. Kenodoxian, kenos, empty, doxa, glory. And we've wedged those two words together in our life where we pretend we're worth something that we're not. Where we believe that we're more important than someone else. Where we believe we should live for ourselves. Where we believe our resources need to be our resources. Where we believe that it's, it's what works for me. And that's, that's empty and hollow. And the model, the contrast is Jesus. Because Jesus takes those and he splits them apart. And in Jesus we see Christ emptied himself to God's glory. And that's a very different picture. That picture of Jesus, in contrast with me, is what makes me say, I want to be like Christ. And that's Paul's whole point here, is to have the same attitude that we see in Jesus. Make sense? Okay, we got that passage down. We'll pick up from there next week, God willing. But let me give you your points to ponder. There's a song... Robert Morgan was just right, man. If you learn songs, they stick in your head. And some of them are good things. Some of them you want to wash out. I don't know why in high school I learned Chevy Van. That song doesn't need to occupy any of my gray cells. If you don't know that song, please don't bother to find out. If you do, help me erase it from your mind too. It's just mean, meaningless dribble. But there's a song, Oh, to be like you. Give all that I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one besides you. Forever. How's that song go? Y'all don't know that song. Huh? Yeah, the hope of my heart. Thank you. I think it's Hillsong, isn't it? I don't know. It's an amazing song. Oh, to be like Jesus. There's an old hymn. Oh, to be like Jesus. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That is divine selflessness, but that divine selflessness is also our calling. It's what we're called to be. It's what we're called to do. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is Jesus explaining in principle what he was doing. He was in, in emptying himself and in humility becoming obedient to others, he was walking a life of selfless love, selfless giving to the point of a cross, death on a cross. And just as he found life from that and a name above every name, so God will help us find who we need to be when we live the way he modeled. Um... And last point, there's a truth here that James set out this way. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So that's my study in contrasts. It's a strong contrast between that fallen human nature to look out for number 
one. And instead to do what Paul said and count others as more important than myself and live for others. It's hard. It's unnatural to the fallen, unregenerate man. But it's the call of the Spirit of God. Because that's the following of Jesus. And if he's going to be Lord of our life, we need to follow him. So with that, let me bless you and let's go to church. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to pour out your blessing. We want to be, well, <laughs> sometimes in our best moments, we want to be like you. And we confess to you that we're not always there. And we pray to you to transform us, to renew our minds, to make us more like Jesus every day. Help us to grow so that we're not today what we used to be. And we're not tomorrow what we are today. We want to be like Jesus. We'll give everything we have just to know him and to be found in him with his righteousness and his love. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray amen.